Good morning. Welcome to our Advent season and series of teaching called Foretold. Advent is the four weeks that leads up to the big celebration of Christmas, a time of preparation and anticipation, not just food and decorations, but hearts and minds also. We want to be ready to celebrate the birth of Jesus. We want to be able to celebrate the reality of Christ in us, the very hope of glory. And we want to be ready for his second advent, when he will be revealed again. All glowing and radiant, sparkling, kind of a little bit like our stage today. For the next few weeks, we're going to explore how God's light shines in us, particularly through the words of the prophet Isaiah. 700 years before the birth of Jesus, he anticipated and foretold the birth of a child with unusual names. Let me read part of it to you from Isaiah chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied exaltation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For all the boots of the trampling warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child has been born to us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders and he is named Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And great will be his authority. And there shall be endless peace for those of the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah lived in a time of political upheaval. His world was falling apart. Great powers were jostling for a position and status. You could think of our world right now with China and the United States, or perhaps Russia and Ukraine. In his time, the big noise was an empire called Assyria, somewhere around modern Iraq and Syria itself. It was led by a great king, Tiglath-Pileser III, you think after one or two, they'd maybe change their names, but he became king in 745 BC and began an expansionary policy, taking territories as clo close to him and then pushing further and further afield. By 738, Israel and Damascus were already paying tribute to him. They were coughing up in taxes. But in chapter one of, in verse one of chapter nine, we read this unusual promise: there will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. 
But in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Zebulon and Naphtali are located somewhere between the Sea of Galilee on one side and the Mediterranean on the other. And in that piece of land, that's where these provinces were. Zebulon was captured by the Assyrians in 734. Naphtali in 732. There was a mass deportation, ethnic cleansing, and replacement by a new people group who moved into the Galilee region, which is why it's referred to in our Bible as Galilee of the nations or Galilee of the Gentiles. And the way of the sea that's also mentioned is the main trading route north-south, still there today, same road, called Via Maris. By the time of Isaiah, everything was getting complicated. We've now made it to 730 BC, and Isaiah lives in a little country, the southern part of God's people, called Judah, with Jerusalem as its capital. And the king is King Ahaz, and he's nervous, because the great foe Assyria is massing an army that is slowly marching towards Jerusalem, and they're outgunned and outnumbered, and he knows it. He's wondering what his best way to defend his nation would be. Who could he form an alliance with that would help him and protect him, and they could have their own sort of BC version of NATO. We'd all stick together and fight the Assyrians. And God sends his prophet Isaiah to King Ahaz at this time and says to him, don't worry about alliances, Ahaz. I've got you. It'll be okay. Just trust in me. Well, that seems a little vague for Ahaz. It should have been enough, perhaps, that God's prophet would tell him that, but he could see that Ahaz was still worried. And so he says, tell you what, God will send you a sign that he's with you, that he'll protect you, that he's for you. He'll send you a sign. But Ahaz, well, you'd think he might be excited about this, that the creator of the universe is on his side, don't worry, but he's not. He's not so sure about all of this. He wants to keep his military and political options open because if it doesn't go well with God's help, who else has he got? And he thinks if God sends a sign, I'm going to have to do whatever God says. I'm not so sure. We need more options than just this. And so Isaiah says, well, God will send you a sign regardless of what you do. And in chapter 7, we read these words that we read often at Christmas time. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. There was a partial fulfillment of that prophecy in Ahaz's time. A notable child was born. If you read Isaiah chapter 8, you can hear, read some of the story for yourself. But it also quickly becomes apparent that God is referring to more than just the birth of a baby a chapter later. He's referring to something in the future. There was a temporary fulfillment in Ahaz's time, in Isaiah's time, but the ultimate fulfillment would happen 700 years later in a little place in Bethlehem. Meanwhile, it's all going wrong for Ahaz and his little country of Judah. The Assyrians have been taken over by somebody else, the Babylonians. That's what you get for going expanding. Somebody else is coming behind you just waiting to take what you left. Babylon's now in charge. And if you remember the stories of Daniel we were reading, the Babylonians came along and took everybody away. Killed some, moved the rest. And the story of Daniel and his friends living in exile, that's where we are with this. They're just waiting for this to happen. It was a dark time for God's people. And in many ways, what, two and a half thousand years later, our world is still in a dark place. Wars in Europe and in the Middle East, 
persistent inflation here, uncertainty about paying our bills, or finding a place to rent that we can afford, or keeping your pension that would do you when you get old, concerns about the environment and natural disasters, angry people who have lost the ability to converse kindly with one another, violence in our own city becoming so prevalent and so commonplace. We can say with certainty that we live in a world that knows about darkness. We wander about in it day after day. We see it on the news and on our screens. There's a darkness in our world. But when we choose to get real honest, there's a darkness within us. There's a darkness inside of me. We know all about professional jealousies and unreal competition at work. We know about the subtle temptation of pride. Look how clever I am. We know the self-absorption that comes when we really believe that we are the center of the universe and I, me, and mine are all that matters. We know about the comfort of hiding away from the problems of our world or our city in our own house. Drive in, garage door down, that's me. Insulated and isolated, not my problem. We've experienced the consequences of our poor choices that have hurt us and hurt others. We know, you know, about the darkness too. And it's into this darkness that Isaiah speaks a word of hope. It is in the sorrow and gloom that he says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them, light has shined. The light shined. They didn't ignite it. They didn't generate it. They didn't kindle it. They discovered it. It's God's action. It's God first. God's grace towards them that light would shine into the darkness of their lives and of their nation. They've been groping around in the darkness for so long, wondering what to do, who could rescue, what would come next, when suddenly light comes and everybody's eyes are blinking as they try to figure out what's going on. And from our vantage point, at this side of everything, thousands of years later, we begin to realize that that light is actually the very presence of Jesus. John's gospel has these words near the start. In him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. The darkness cannot win. The story of Jesus is about light flooding into our world and into our lives, bringing justice and mercy and faith and hope. It is God revealing himself to us. I don't need to go looking for God. He's already come looking for me. You don't need to go looking for him because he's here looking for you. The Apostle Paul would write this, for it is the God who said light will shine out of darkness it's this God who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. When we see Jesus, we see God. We see God's glory, and he has revealed himself. And in the stories of Jesus, we discover about God making things right. It's a story of justice. We discover God freely offering forgiveness to people, a story of mercy, we can see God believing in us so that eventually we can believe in him and have faith. 
We read about God bringing us out of the dark and into a whole new future, a life filled with hope. And here in Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet uses three metaphors to explain how this comes about for his people then and the joy that they will find. He talks about a depopulated region because they're all being taken away that eventually will grow in numbers and be filled with singing voices again. He talks about a nation where the harvest has been so poor, things have been so bad, but now the harvest is abundant and fruitful and they have got plenty. He talks about people who had become the spoils of war, somebody else's bounty, their lives, their possessions, their homes all taken but no longer being plundered to somebody else. Instead, they get to enjoy, kind of like kids getting all their Halloween candy out or tearing into their Christmas gifts. Not only will these things happen, but as they happen, people will celebrate with joy, says Isaiah. And he gives three reasons why they can be certain of God's promise. And each of his reasons begins with the word for. Verse 4, there will be freedom from foreign oppression. We can rejoice for there will be freedom from foreign oppression. Verse 5, there will be a cessation of war. We rejoice for there will be an end to war and bloodshed. And then in verse 6, there will be a child born with these names. We can celebrate because and for this child is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. Today we want to look at the first of those four names, Wonderful Counselor. Anybody here actually expecting a baby? Yep, yep, yep. Names are a difficult thing when you're having a baby. You've probably figured that out by now. There are a ton of rules that nobody ever really explains to you. Like if you or your partner ever dated somebody with a certain name, That's off limits, like till all eternity. You can never mention that name in your house ever again. If your parents or your partner's parents didn't like somebody or thought they were kind of weird that had that name, you will never get away with doing this or you will be disinherited immediately. It's complicated. Our kids used an app called Kinder. I kid you not, they really didn't. You're swiping left and right to see if you could pick some names. We actually copied the idea off them, see if we could figure out what they were going to call the kids, but... But this child is called Wonderful Counselor. Handel in his beautiful oratorio, the Messiah, he got this part wrong. I don't know what else he got wrong, but he definitely got this part wrong. He puts a comma between the two words, and so they start singing, Wonderful, and then there's a big pause, pregnant silence. Counselor, but he's wrong. It's Wonderful Counselor. It's an epithet that goes together. They're not two separate names. It's one of four sets of paired words. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Counselor, is really talking about governance and administration and planning and policy, getting things done. And the modifier, wonderful, shows that this is extraordinary how it's done. Amazing wisdom, wonderful insight, genuine concern and foresight and the execution of these duties. And when you think about Jesus, you begin to see how appropriate the name is because Jesus is wise. He's wise. He astonishes his contemporaries by his ability to see beyond what they can see. And as they observe his work, people begin to ask questions. We read this in Mark chapter 6. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, astounded. And they said, 
Where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? The familiar story of Jesus' birth that we'll read later on in Luke chapter 2 moves quickly from the manger to his childhood where he's celebrated for his wisdom. And Luke comments, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Where might you need Jesus' wisdom in your life? What are the choices and decisions that you are facing that are so very difficult? And you could only imagine the difference it would make if Jesus gave you his wisdom in that choice. Where do you feel hemmed in like King Ahaz? You don't know where to go. Who's hurt you? And you don't know how to move on. Could you today open your heart to Jesus and allow him to speak to you? Because Jesus is the wonder bringer. He's the wonder bringer, the wonder we experience at the birth of a child, the wonder when we fall in love, the wonder when we're captivated by a sunset or the aurora. Jesus wants to bring that wonder to your life. The wonder that he understands me and you. The wonder that he can empathize with me in my predicaments. The wonder that he can help me in my choices. And that I never need to be alone. He'll always be with me. The wonder that God loves us. The wonder that Jesus would die for us. The wonder that he offers us a new life filled with purpose and with joy. The wonder of Jesus because he's the wonder bringer. He's wise. And Jesus is an extraordinary teacher. We read it in Mark chapter 1. They were astounded at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority not as the scribes. And here's an example of his teaching in Mark chapter 10. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Well, we know that's impossible. Than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Most of you should be getting nervous by now because we live in the the 1% of the planet. We really do. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, who then can be saved because they share our assumption that when I get lots of stuff, that's God's blessing. Ha! And Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but not for God. For God all things are possible. The glorious impossible of the choir's song. This term's impossible, impossible, the echo words that we found in a question in Genesis chapter 18, when the question is asked, is anything too wonderful for God? And the answers are resounding, no, everything is possible for God. Jesus is wonderful in his teaching because he opens up new possibilities that we and everybody else have always thought of as impossible. The rich and the rulers of those days, they didn't want things to change. They didn't want these impossibilities to be possible. They preferred boundaries marking who's in and who's out, who's like me and who's not. The possibilities that Jesus announces override all of that. They override the present way that power is divided. They override the present way that resources are distributed. It's extraordinary. And Jesus in his wonderful teaching opens up these new possibilities for us. What is the impossible thing in your life today? Can you name it? 
the one thing you really wish for. But somehow in the quietness, you know it's just not going to happen. What is that impossible thing? What would you want Jesus to do for you? And Jesus' actions, they're astonishing. His cousin John is in prison. He sends friends to ask if Jesus really is the promised one. Is it really you? Is it? And Jesus responds to the messengers to take back his insightful. In Luke 7 we read, he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those with a skin disease are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Jesus healed the sick. The blind see, the deaf hear, the immobile began to walk around, the hungry are fed at huge seaside picnics that Jesus hosts, the enemy flees, even the weather has to obey his command. And he forgives sins. It's astonishing. He has the audacity to do God-like things because that's who he is. The things that Jesus does are astonishing as he opens the imagination of all of us as to what is possible because he is God in the flesh standing with them. Could you even imagine today what Jesus could do for you? Could you imagine the impossible that he could make possible for you today? Could you believe in the wonderful counselor? Jesus is also quite subversive though. He challenges situations. He inverts power structures. He exalts the lowly, just like his mum said when she sang her beautiful song that we call the Magnificat in Luke 1. He's shown strength with his arm and scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He's brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He's filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. That's not normally how things are done. Not then, not now. The rich and powerful, they're not going to stand for this. In fact, Luke reveals what's in their hearts when later he'll write and say this in chapter 19. Every day Jesus was teaching in the temple in Jerusalem. The chief priests, the scribes, the leaders of the people, they kept looking for a way to kill him. But they did not find anything they could do. For all the people were spellbound by what they heard. They wanted to kill him. Not because he was offering free health care. Not because he had a great feeding program down at the beach and everybody could get their lunch for free. They wanted to kill him not because he was nice and kind and good. They wanted to kill him because he was subversive. He's turning the world upside down. Is God saying something to you about your life? Places in your life that you don't want turned upside down? Places in your life that you've kept secret from everybody and somehow you think you can keep it a secret from him too? Maybe we all need to listen better for the voice of Jesus. And as we discover who Jesus is, we discover he involves us. Isaiah knew that. Verse 7 says this, Great will be his authority. 
and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Great will be his authority. Other translations might put it like this. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. In other words, Jesus is recruiting for his new regime. He's the king. And he's recruiting for his new regime. He's involving his followers, those who are astonished by this wonderful counselor. He anticipates that his followers, that includes us, who sign on for his new regime, the kingdom of God, will be seen as troublemakers and people who continually stand against power structures and against the destruction of our planet, against people who hoard and leave others with nothing. We're told by Isaiah that the wonderful counselor comes as a child. God's answer to oppression and hostility and this proud and cruel world of ours is not to come as a jackbooted warrior and sort it all out, but it is to come as a child, helpless in a little village. God's answer to everything that has terrorized his planet and us too is to send a baby. His power is so far beyond the Assyrians or the Babylonians or whoever the big shots are that he can defeat them with a child. His answers to the bullies who have swaggered through history is not to become a bigger bully. His answer is Jesus. Change will only happen as his people become engaged. We can't subscribe to an old way of living any longer because we've joined Jesus' new regime. That's why we talk of joining Jesus. What opportunity is he going to give you this Christmas to join him? How do you think Jesus will invite you to join him this Christmas? Is there somewhere he'll ask you to go? Is there somebody he'll ask you to visit? Or invite to your home? Is there something in your life he'll ask you to surrender and say you get it all? What would he want you to say to someone? Somebody spoke to me last night and told me something God told them to say that encouraged me no end. This isn't cheer up Let's just pull together and make the world a better place for once. The Bible never encourages to be indifferent in the force of evil and darkness, but gives us no illusions that we can fix it all by ourselves either. That's not real. But when we join Jesus, things happen because he's our wonderful counselor. He's changing everything. He's making everything brand new and invites us to join with him. But of course, to really join Jesus... I need to acknowledge my need of Jesus, to acknowledge the darkness inside of me, to allow his light to shine within me and expose it all, to admit that I am a sinner who needs his forgiveness, to recognize that I need him to change me because only he can, to turn control of my life over to him, to surrender everything I have and everything I am to him. 
But here's the problem. Honestly, most of the time nothing happens. Nothing happens. Our world just keeps looking as it's circling the drain. And sometimes that's how I feel with my life too. Spinning round, spinning down. There's no sign of help or relief. I think Ahaz must have thought a little bit that way too. Isaiah's making all these big promises. But there's an army marching toward the city wall. What's he actually supposed to do? I think sometimes we think, or people would say to us, see, this is the problem with all this Christian stuff and Bible stuff. You have big ideas and grandiose dreams, but it doesn't address real people in real situations. It's sentimentality and pie in the sky. And I think a lot of people feel that way at Christmas time. We're thinking, I like the quaint stories. It's nice. It's good. We get a little bit of snow and we talk about Jesus, the baby in the manger, and there's an angel flying around somewhere, and the wise guys show up with their gifts, and we talk about goodwill towards everybody, but my life isn't changing a bit. My job's hard. My marriage relationship's difficult. I'm tired of this chronic pain. And while these stories of Jesus are heartwarming, they're not changing anything. Is that you? You ever felt that way? If you have, just turn to the person beside you and say, I hate Christmas. No, 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 don't, 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 don't. But some of us feel that way. We've got, like Ahaz, a real enemy somewhere crouching at the door who wants to destroy us. And what does the promise of a future wonderful counselor do? But I want us to think about that. You see, when God sent Jesus, he's addressing our problems at its very roots. Because Ahaz's problems and my problems and your problems are about, are about something very different. It's not that just Ahaz has got an army to deal with, or we have health issues or relational issues or financial issues that we're trying to figure out. The root of all of our problems is a separation from God. He's up there, I'm down here. What am I supposed to do about that? And all our problems stem from this. I don't mean that you got some health challenge or some difficult situation. This is God's punishment. I'm not saying that. What I am saying, though, is the real problem is our separation from God. And that problem keeps multiplying itself in a thousand different ways in our lives. J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, often described evil as a shape shifter. It's like a shadow. You defeat it, and it turns into another shape and appears again. You ever sense that? I mean, we could think about technological advances. We do things now that we could never have dreamed of doing 10 years ago. And yet, while technology solved a lot of problems and made life much more convenient, at the end of the day, it's created other problems too. It makes us feel a lot more secure. I can go online and check my bank account. I can go online and see what's going on in my home. That's all nice. But now I've become vulnerable to cyber attacks and I have to think about who's phishing in my account and all the concerns we have of identity theft. I can stay connected with my family overseas with my phone. A wonderful gift to be able to do that. Chat to them for nothing whenever I feel like it and see what's going on. And yet at the same time, my same phone can make me very disconnected from my family around the table because I'm staring at it and not at them. Despite all the improvements, it doesn't really help because the darkness is not the phone. The darkness lies within our hearts. And better technology can't change our hearts can make mine beat with my pacemaker, but it can't change it. All it does is give a new shape to the darkness that keeps looking for us.
Martin Luther once said, the problem with the human heart is that it is curved in on itself. We are radically self-absorbed. So much so that we barely understand it. It creates a darkness in us that gives birth to a spectrum of evil. From the horrific images we see of what's going on in our world, to the problems of the perhaps trivial with our phone, to the reasons for relational breakdown that we experience. Sin has to be dealt with at its roots. And so God in his offer to help Ahaz promised a Messiah who one day would ultimately rescue us from our sin and transform our hearts. And that's Jesus, the wonderful counselor. Do you need him in your life today? Do you need his wisdom to help you with your choices? Do you need his work to do something for you that seems so very impossible today? Do you need to discover that you're not alone, but he's with you? Maybe you need to acknowledge him for the very first time in your life. Maybe like most of us, we need to pray, come and shine your light into my heart. Drive the darkness from me. Do you want a wonder-filled life? Because Jesus is the wonder-giver and the wonder-bringer. And his gift, a light shone in the darkness for you. God's gift, a son, is given for you. Will you receive the gift? Let's pray. Father, thank you that though there has been doom and gloom, and although somehow it seems showing up in the news every day, thank you that a light has shone. Thank you that your Son has been given to us sheer grace. And today as we pause to think of the brokenness of our world, the brokenness of our own lives, or the dark recesses of our soul that we try to hide from others and from you, we pray that your light would shine that you would pierce and penetrate through the darkness and drive it from us. We pray that the wonder of the glorious impossible would happen for us when you could make the impossible so very real. We need your wisdom. We need your guidance. We need your love. We need your forgiveness. We need your strength. We need your courage and hope. We need the wonderful counselor. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray, come to our hearts right now as we say yes to you that we would discover all that you have for us as you change us and make us to become like you. We ask in your name. Amen.